This is Steve Robbins. I'm here today with Jonathan Levy, who is an expert in accelerated learning, memory, and speed reading. You can find him at becomeasuperlearner.com. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm absolutely stoked to be here today. Well, I'm totally stoked that you're here because you remembered to be here on time, which means you must have a great memory. How did this come about? How did you get into all of this? Yeah, so my story starts way, way back when I was a pretty young guy, and I always had difficulty in school. I was the class clown. I was the kid who was having to go in at recess and after school to catch up because I couldn't pay attention, which meant that I needed to end up doing a lot of self-study, and basically it, it was no longer cute or funny at about age eight. My parents had me tested, came back with a list of you know ADD and motivation problems and all kinds of stuff like that. And that basically persisted up until high school. I was a problem student. In high school, I was uh, fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, depending on how you look at it, to discover Ritalin, and then everything was okay. But I realized, you know, that kind of carried me through high school, carried me through college. And then I realized, looking back on my degree, I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember anything. So fast forward a few years later, and I was going to go back to school to get an MBA. And I looked at the price tag of that MBA, and I looked at the fact that it was a 10-month condensed program, so two years of content in 10 months. And I said, oh boy, like I really want to remember this stuff. I'm paying a lot of money to learn this stuff. It was at that time that I got really, really lucky, and I was doing an internship in a venture capital office, and I met someone who had this incredible ability. He could read and retain things at like five times the average person, and he was memorizing everything as he went along. So it turns out that he and his wife had developed these techniques and they taught them at local universities and to local corporates and stuff like that. And basically I signed up, I did this really intensive training and then turned around and said, hey, you know, I have all these friends who wanna learn this stuff. Do you guys have anything in English? Because I learned this stuff in Hebrew. Uh, and they go, no, not really. I go, well, do you guys want me to translate it? I mean, I think this stuff is amazing and I have so many friends lining up to learn about it. Why don't we do something with it? They said, yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. And uh, the rest is kind of history. Up till now, we've taught about 70,000 people how to read faster, remember more, and learn more effectively. Wow, and I'll bet you know every single one of their names and can identify them on site. <laughs> no, I can't say that I do. And unfortunately, one of the issues with online learning is you have such little, I mean, as you know, like, podcasting, writing books, stuff like that, maybe one out of 10,000 people write to you uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, with, with the proper techniques, in theory, you could easily remember 70,000 people's names. Tell us a little bit, what are the foundations, what are the fundamental skills that we need to start working on if we want to develop this kind of memory? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that way. So Here's the first thing that most people uh, need to understand, right? So you've heard of the paleo diet and you've heard of functional medicine and you've heard of functional exercise, stuff like that. And, and the basic premise behind that is, hey, our lifestyle has changed so much in the last 15,000 years that our bodies, our evolution, our genes, our organs, whatever, have not been able to keep up with it. And that's why, you know, we're obese as a society and that's why we have so much depression and it's a dissonance from the way that we lived for two and a half million years and whether or not you believe in evolution that is true right we've only really been farming for 15,000 years our modern education system is something like 2,000 years old and while that does make it very dated 
it still means that that's not the way that we learn for millennia, right? So the first thing is, is to take a really good hard look at how your Paleolithic ancestors learned, right? So they were learning based on visual memory. They were learning based on experiential memory. And so our brains are wired to, first off, prefer novel, new, and exciting information because that's the kind of stuff that matters from a survival perspective. And second off, to connect everything to pre-existing knowledge, right? So the, the three basic fundamentals are that. One is creating uh, links to pre-existing knowledge, right? So how is this relevant? How do I add this in to the existing neural network of stuff that I already know? Because we've all had that experience where you ask someone, you meet someone from Czechoslovakia and you say, or Czech Republic rather, you say, hey, how do I say hello, nice to meet you in your language? And they tell you and you repeat it. And then 10 seconds later, you forget it because the brain goes, yeah, this, this is related to nothing that has ever been of interest to me. And it just tosses it out. So that's one. Two is connecting everything to a visual memory. So I want you to think about, Stever, if you're a paleolithic man or woman, you're walking around, what kind of information gives you survival advantage. And it's not sound so much. It's things more like remembering what it is, the exact shade of berry that makes you sick versus the exact shade of berry that heals that rash that you have. So visual information is super important. And then the third component, which I already mentioned, is making things novel and interesting. That's it. I mean, that's the whole basis you talk to Every single memory champion, every world record holder, every grandmaster, it's all based on those three fundamental shifts in the way that we learn new information. I'm looking at those and I'm already thinking Lady Gaga certainly gets the novel, new, and exciting, as well oh, yeah. as the visual memory. I mean, no one else has a meat dress. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, interesting. So uh, how, do we, how do we start to apply these in places? What kind, like, well, it strikes me to begin with, there are a lot of different kinds of things that one would want to remember in modern society that, that obviously don't just correspond to what happened uh, the way that the environment was back in paleo times. Because totally. I, I read books, I want to remember things from books, and that's not really directly experiential. Those are words I sometimes do want to remember, say, someone's name if I'm at a conference, and there is obviously a degree to which that is experiential, although mm -hmm. the name mm -hmm. itself is not etc. So can you give us uh, some idea of of how do we divide the world up into different things where we know there will be a different memory technique needed for each one of the different contexts? What are the different kinds Brilliant. of contexts we're going to show up in? Brilliant question. So the first thing you can do is, is connect to pre-existing knowledge. So let's take the example of learning names. Well, you meet someone named Chris. You connect that person to someone else named Chris that you know. You picture those two people together. Now we've taken two out of the three requirements that I talked about before, right? Connection to pre-existing knowledge and a visual image. Chris and Chris are holding hands. And then if you really want to, and this is kind of the sad truth that people have said for literally thousands of years. I mean, Plato used these memory techniques. Uh, the more graphic, violent, sexual, whatever... Uh, that covers that kind of novelty that we talked about, right? So Lady Gaga draped in meat, that's like a pretty graphic, disgusting image, which is why it's the first thing that popped to your mind. So we can picture Chris in all kinds of different situations uh, with other Chris that are going to be memorable. And it doesn't have to be obscene necessarily, 
but you know we can picture him uh, climbing on a cross, crisscross, right? All kinds of different things. And then we get that third requirement, which is novelty, shock factor. It almost seems to me like after a while, wouldn't your brain in some sense get um, get tired? Well, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but wouldn't it get tired of novel things? I'm just trying to imagine how many different people I could come up with wacky pictures for. And it seems like eventually I'd be like, oh, gosh, that Jonathan writes. So there's a picture of him riding a gigantic duck through the zombie apocalypse. You know, mm-hmm. what, what else is new? Or or is it? does your brain just always have infinite capacity, essentially, for the novel? Well, I think that's a question really of like creativity. And I think once, as, as long as things continue to be new and interesting and weird, uh, I have never encountered, you know, someone's inability to remember that new stuff. Now, granted, this isn't a, a cure that if someone tells you their name once and then you meet them 20 years at a conference, 20 years later, you're going to remember their name. I mean, there are systems that we advocate in the course for basically refreshing your memories because your brain has. basically you have an organ called the hippocampus you have two of them one in the left hemisphere one in the right and it's very very focused on forgetting and i always like to tell people if you look at the movie inside out right there's basically a, a scene where the child goes to sleep and there's these little gremlins who go around with a vacuum machine and they're super focused on trimming the fat and they go uh what what is this one uh it's it's information about my little pony do we need this no we don't need this Right, And I remember that, by the way, because it connects to pre-existing knowledge that I know. And I have a visual symbol for it, the exact scene in the movie. And it's a pretty novel, kind of weird idea, right? So it matches those three things. And that's essentially what your brain is doing. So in order to maintain long-term memories, you do need to go through a practice of what's called spaced repetition and a review. But if we talk two days from now, three days from now, you're going to remember the exact example that I gave you, the name that we memorized. Um, and to get back kind of to your question, speaking of memory, you asked about, well, what about numbers and what about things like that? Basically, throughout the years, throughout the, the decades, people have come out with really, really intelligent systems that allow you to take something like a 16-digit number and convert that into a series of words, which you can then convert into a picture. So each number, each digit gets assigned a letter, then you form words, those words form complex scenes. So for example, I had a 100 shekel bill in my wallet three months ago that a friend of mine and I decided to memorize. And it was lamb, lit, mash, sash, beat, right? And that that way I know that that was five, three, five, one, so on and so forth. And so all I have is a symbol of this lamb being lit on fire, mashing a beauty pageant sash into the ground, so on and so forth. Whoa, okay. You just took a bunch of steps there that that (laughs) let's unpack. So you you had a bill that had a serial number on it. Correct. And uh, walk me through step by step here what you did. Yeah, so the first thing I do is I look at the number. And this is, by the way, a system anyone can learn about. Uh, you know, it's one of the many things that, that we teach. It's called the major method. Um, and what you do is, so first thing I had was 5351, right? That was the beginning of the bill. Uh, 5 has an L on top, so it's L. 3 is M. We ignore the A. Vowels don't count for anything. Uh, and the B is silent, obviously, in that word. So 
lamb is 5-3. Then we have a 5-1. One. one is T or D because those letters have one downstroke. And I realize, you know, if you're listening in the car, this is hard to imagine. If I draw it out for you, you'll see, okay, wow, yeah, a 3 does look like an M. A 5 does look like a sideways L perched atop a half circle, so on and so forth. And then you just you do a little bit of work up front, Stever, so that you have this toolkit so that if you tell me, listen, I need you to get on bus 172 for seven exits, and then I need you, you know, I go, okay, 172, that's easy. That's, you know, Tekken, the video game Tekken, Mm -hmm. and then you need me to go for X number of exits and so on and so forth, and it becomes fluid to where I just remember one of the characters from the video game Tekken on top of a bus, and I remember bus 172. Does that make sense, or did I kind of rush through that? Well, you did rush through it. I don't know that I would necessarily be able to get that if I were driving, but let me see if I can recap it, and and maybe I got it. So first sure. of all, you've taken the numbers that you're going to memorize, which is the 5351, and Correct. you've converted each one of those into a letter. And, Correct. And presumably you have, you already have a pre-existing set of letters, so you know that a 5 is always an L, and a 3 is always an M, and a 1 is always a T or a D. Bingo. Yeah, you nailed it. Okay. So once you've got that, 5351 becomes, in your system, lamb, and then you visualize a lamb, and that's what gives you, and it's actually the visual memory of the lamb and the fact that you know that you then have to decompose that back into numbers, and you know how to do that because you have a set association of numbers and letters. Exactly. That's how you're able to remember it. Exactly with one correction, which is 5351 is lamb lit or lamb lot or even lamb latte. So uh, my friend did it a different way, which is a lamb drinking a latte, because the A and the E at the end don't matter. Only consonants matter. So a lamb drinking a latte might be easier for you. For me, I was like, let's light that lamb on fire, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you said, it can be the novel, new, and exciting can be sexual or violent. And uh, exactly. um, we uh, All right. Okay, so I've got that. Now, obviously, in the podcast, people aren't in listening to this, aren't going to be able to just suddenly in, internalize the system. Where can they find a list of letter associations and maybe a recap of this? Is there anything written about this on your website or is there someplace else? Uh, that you know? Yeah, they. I mean, they can just Google major method and check that out. Uh, we have a free trial of my course, but it, it covers more of the foundational stuff. Uh, you know, how do you create the visual symbols? How do you do that stuff? I don't get into the actual uh, tactics right away because I'm a firm believer that people need to understand how it works in order to to use it with anything. Um, But yeah, if you just Google major method, uh, you can check out. And I think recently I did, recently I did a video on this. I'm not sure if it's going to be on YouTube anytime anytime soon, but I mean, this is a known system that nemonists all over the world use. A friend of mine, uh, Nelson Dillis, four-time USA memory champion, uses a derivative version of this system. I mean, when you're memorizing uh, 24 packs of cards in an hour or one pack of cards in 24 seconds, which is the world record right now, you have to use modified versions of this, but it's all based on this foundational system combined with uh, you know a few other higher level techniques. For example, the memory palace, which I know you said you're, you guys are going to be talking about on a future episode. It's all based on, on this stuff, visual memory, uh, linking to pre-existing knowledge, novelty and an exciting kind of visualization. I'm going to poke into something you just said a second ago. You said that your courses are things like even how do you form visual symbols? And I know that I've met people who say, now I'm one, I'm a visual thinker. So for me, mm-hmm. just about anything you talk about, I've got a picture going on. But I have there met people who have said they aren't. 
I've met people who said they can't form visual images and that they thought when other people said that the other people were forming visual images, they thought, oh, that's just a metaphor. They don't really mean they're making images in their brain. And I'm kind yeah. of like, well, of course they mean they're making images in their brain. What do you do with someone who can't make images? Or how do you teach someone to be able to make images? Yeah, this is a very tough question that, that we're kind of facing. So there's a condition. The condition you're referring to is called aphantasia. Um, it hasn't been proven that it's actually some kind of neurological disorder or anything like that. The, the research on it is sparse, but they estimate that up to 2% of the population may have some form of aphantasia, inability to visualize. We had one student named Donnie who was struggling through our course and struggling through our course, and we could not figure out why. And he was really one of our most dedicated, most vocal students. And one day I hopped on a call with him, and I was like, so, you know, what? what's the issue? And he's like, well basically exactly what you said like i understand the metaphor of and i'm like not donnie it's not a metaphor like visualization so we worked through that and in his case it was very very slow going like can you visualize the color pink well yeah i think roughly vaguely and then can you visualize a blurry outline of a an elephant in pink so on and so forth and little by little we got him there now i don't know if we can repeat that you know, if it was just that one case, but that's something that I am looking into improving and building into our course. So if anyone out there uh, suffers from aphantasia and maybe you didn't know up until just this moment that you do, like, please reach out to me uh, and and I'd be happy to work with you on this because I think that's one of those things. You know, I have a soft spot, Stever, for people who have quote unquote disorders like myself. Um, and I really believe, you know, I found a, a solution for my attention deficit disorder. I really believe there's some kind of solution for aphantasia. It's just a matter of you're going to develop it and then, and then help people be, well, okay. Um, so we've talked a little bit about association and about new novel and exciting and about connecting things to visual memory. We mm -hmm. then kind of, uh, uh, dipped our foot into the major method, although we don't really have a chance to cover it in detail because it's more complicated than you can do in a podcast. Um, uh, what is, can you give the people listening like one really concrete way to memorize something that would be useful in daily life? And I don't have a specific idea in mind because you're the one who teaches people this and you know what could be done in, in you know, five totally. or 10 minutes. Uh, you, can you give us something where we can walk away and like try it this afternoon and either amaze ourselves at the ability to remember something we'd never tried before or amaze our friends. Totally. So personally, I think names are, you know, as Dale Carnegie said, remember that a person's name is to that person, the sweetest sound in any language. Uh, and we covered that a little bit. So, you know, try doing that, try connecting a person that you meet, you know, how does this Stephanie look like another Stephanie, picture them together, picture uh, Mark having a mark across his uh, face, picture, you know, Steve and your uncle Steve, so on and so forth. But uh, why don't we try it with a foreign language word? Ooh, right? okay, let's do it. So uh, do you want a Spanish one or do you want a Russian one? I've got two really nice examples. Oh, let's do Russian. Okay, so Russian is a, is a tough language, right? It has a lot of really interesting sounds. And uh, people always say to me, like, okay, I'm learning my fourth language right now. And they always say, like, don't you ever get confused? And I say, on the contrary, because the more sounds that I have, the more words that I have the more anchor points I have, right? I can tie on to so many different sounds. And this is why, by the way, Japanese language learners have such a hard time because their, their basically palate or their, their 
library of sounds is very kind of poor, if you will. So in Russian, the word for open is otkriti, right? So O-T-K-R-I-T-I, otkriti. Um, and I want you to picture, just this is a really, really kind of graphic one, and I apologize you know, for anyone who gets offended in the audience, but I want you to picture yourself or someone you love with a stab wound in their right side, right under their rib cage, right? And they get to the emergency room. They get to the emergency room. They're standing under the emergency room sign. You picture it, you know, there's the glass doors. There's the driveway for the ambulance. They get there and all the lights are off. It's closed. And they say to themselves, oh my God, the emergency room really ought, ought to be open for critical, kriti, situations. Now, that works better if, if you're a Hebrew speaker because in Hebrew, we the, the cognate for critical is kriti. Uh, so it works really well for me. You might need a different symbol for you or you might just remember ot kriti. It ought to be open because this is critical. Ot kriti. Ot kriti. Ot kriti. Wow. Exactly. What and you- I mean, I've learned 800 words in Russian just like that. Right? So dolni is a picture of a doll's knee. And I mean, I, I can walk you through, it's essentially a memory palace with all these associative symbols based on sounds, now, converting the sounds to images. I was going to say, now, how, how do you make sure that it's also attached to the right meaning? Because you just said, uh, you just said, Dolni? It ought which, to be open. Oh, ah, okay. So it was, it was in the dialogue for the emergency room. Um, Bingo. And I want to, I want to make the very clear distinction that I'm not just telling myself a story. You know, because you'll forget that the sentence, but you'll remember the image. You'll remember, oh my gosh, I'm gushing blood from under my rib cage, and you'll remember the visualization of the lights being off at your local emergency room. Um, the words are less important than the sounds and the pictures, because look, ultimately, sound—it's kind of like play back the image that you had for the first sentence of the conversation. And you're like, yeah, I totally remember that. You know, Jonathan and I were talking about his standing desk, which is made of bamboo, blah, blah, blah. Now play back to me the sounds of what I said. You have no idea. And that was, according to my timer, 22 minutes ago. Uh, so sound is just not nearly as memorable. And that connects to exactly what we talked about, what, it, what information gives an evolutionary advantage. And it's not sound. Interesting. Now, this would seem to fly in the face of some of the things that I've heard where it says put things to music. Yeah, you know, that's kind of a, a neat little like mental hack. And I, I met with a startup once who was like, yeah, we, we have an app that automatically generates a song. And my question is like, all right, I want to I wanna remember the order of all the nucleotides in such and such organism. How do I do that? And the other thing is is let's talk about speed, right? So I often, when I give talks or something like that, I will go out, talk with people before. I'll try to memorize 40 people's names in five minutes, right? I don't know about you, but even though I'm very interested in music and I play a couple of musical instruments, I can't, I can't write music that fast. <laughs> right. Uh, true. Very true. Interesting. Okay. And you can do 40 people in five minutes? Oh, yeah. No problem. It's really interestingly enough, actually, Nelson Dellis, the guy I mentioned before, had this really amazing challenge called the Extreme Memory Challenge, where he wanted to get, I think, a million people to test their memories against his. And he's uh, the four-time USA Memory Champ. So he has you do 30 in four minutes or five minutes. 
And so I went through this challenge and I did it. And then he emails you 24 hours later uh, to test you and see. So he gets 29 out of 30. And I did this about a year ago, right? He gets 29 out of 30. I, and I always give him a hard time about this when we talk, I forgot to do the challenge, right? I did it on a Thursday night. The next night was Friday night. So I didn't get the email. So I log in like 40 hours later, right? Significant disadvantage. And I get 29 out of 30. Same as, you know, a four-time memory championship champion winner. Nice. And did you use the same, were you using the same technique that he did? Or do you know what technique he was using? So I, I didn't combine it with a memory palace. I just made a visual association for each one of those people. So, you know, there was someone named Sasha. I picture Sasha with a sash on her. Very simple, right? And it was just memorize the names and the faces of these people. Uh, and, you know, for under 250 names, to, to be honest with you, I, I talked with Harry Lorraine, right? And he used to go on the Johnny Carson show, which had a 1,500 person audience. And he wouldn't even use the memory palace. He would just basically remember which seat people were in. And there's a great, great clip of Harry Lorraine, who, by the way, is he's kind of like the the Tony Robbins of memory from the 1950s. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh, there's a great video of him being like, oh, Stephen, you're trying to trick me. You switch seats with Jimmy. And, and he goes through 1,500 names. I mean, just incredible, right? Remembering the names, locations of every single person in the audience. How long does it, it take it, to develop this, by the way? I was just going to say, I'm so glad you asked. And you can be taught to do this in like a matter of weeks. I mean, you can be taught to do it in a matter of hours, and, and the reason our course is, is weeks is because I really want people to learn it, practice it, apply it. And there are some growing pains. I, I'm the first to say it's not easy to relearn how to learn. Um, and, you know, you've been walking on your feet for X many years. And if I were to tell you tomorrow all the things you need to do to walk on your hands, I could explain it to you. But it's going to take time to build those muscles to where you can walk on your hands. Um, so, you know, there, there are some growing pains in, in relearning how to do something that you've been doing literally since the day you were born. Sure. And how long would it take somebody, if someone were really committed to this and practiced, whatever, an hour a day or 10 minutes a day, whatever your, whatever yeah, would be reasonable? We like to say the memory stuff is about four weeks at an average of 20 to 30 minutes a day. Uh, and then we tack on the speed reading stuff, which is an additional four weeks, I believe. Interesting. I've seen it done in less. I've seen it done in much, much more. So, so really 20 to 30 minutes a day of practice, if you did that for a couple of months, that could be enough to substantially change your mental abilities and, and help oh, you yeah. become a superhuman. Yeah, and there's an 80-20 rule that applies here. I mean, 20% of, of the improvement or 20% of the tips are just the things that we've covered in this podcast. So I don't want people to feel like they have to you know enroll in this program necessarily to get benefit. If you take these three tips that I shared today, your memory will be 80% better tomorrow, right? So you can remember me, Jonathan Levy, connect me to another Jonathan that you know. Uh, if you don't know a Jonathan, connect me to Jonathan Livingston Siegel, right? So the association there is like, I'm kind of a weirdo and I kind of do my own thing and I kind of explain that there's a different way to do things just like Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And you're enlightened, and, let's not forget that part. Well, I, I, I'm awakening, not awakened, I guess. But, you know, and, and people will remember me like that. And, and I always give people funny associations. Like, I don't carry a business card, Steve, because I'm like, no, no, I'm going to teach you how to remember my name. It's super easy. Imagine Jonathan Livingston Stiegel. He's wearing a pair of Levi's, right? And it, pretty weird visualization, right, to see a Siegel wearing Levi's. Super simple. You're not going to forget that, right? Yep. 
And yeah. by the way, it's spelled the same way. So, And how am I going to connect that to you as opposed to just walking around going, wow, I think I saw the seagull wearing Levi's. That was really strange. Yeah. So, so how do uh, I make sure well, it's connected to you as opposed to being connected to something else? Uh, well, I guess with the association of Jonathan Livingston Siegel explaining to people like about, because his whole thing, if anyone has, hasn't read the book, it's a brilliant kind of children's book. His whole thing is like speed flying fast and, and perfecting the art of flying. And I'm all about speed reading and memory and perfecting the art of learning. So I guess that's, that's the connection, but usually it's just a matter of like, I'm not going to give you a business card because I want you to look me up on LinkedIn and you're going to remember, and I'm going to take that risk and here's why. Interesting. That explains also why people remember my name a whole lot, because Stever is an unusual name, and I usually have to repeat it, but people often remember it from there going forward, which is embarrassing for me because I don't necessarily remember their name. But Oh, yeah, I have moments like that all the time where I'll memorize someone's name, you know, at a conference or whatever, and then I'll see them at the same conference a year later, and I'm like, oh, boy, oh, boy. (laughs) But the truth is, like, like I said, if you really want to learn things, and this is this is kind of the the next step of it, is you have to be intelligent about the review. You can't read a book once and remember everything that it taught you ten years. The books that ten years later, the books that you do remember ten years later, you know why you remember them, because you've reviewed it over the years. So I'll read this amazing book, uh, let's say E Myth Revisited, and then I'll talk to another entrepreneur, and I'll be like, Stever, have you read this? This guy has this amazing metaphor or this case study of this woman with a bake shop and I'll talk about it and then you know that'll be the day after I read the book and then two weeks later I'll sit with someone else then four months later basically I'm building in spaced repetition and you know it's not the case that our brains remember this stuff because we do it it's we do this stuff because it works like essentially what you're doing is repeatedly telling the brain this stuff matters to me. The content of this book matters to me because I'm talking about it and I'm thinking about it. And what we teach is basically once you've determined, you know, something that you're not going to talk about, like, uh, I don't know how often I, I necessarily talk about quantum mechanics, but I want to remember some of the stuff in Stephen Hawking's book. I have systems now to where I can just hack that. I can recreate that process artificially. Got it. Interesting that you mentioned that, uh, that you mentioned the way that you do the space repetition. One of the things that I do when I am reading a book is I typically read a book with a notepad next to me and I take notes as I read it. Weirdly, I rarely go back and review the notes. It's the taking of the notes that seems to make the difference. But I will go back to the same book a while later and do it again. But this time I'll skim it more quickly, but I'll still jot down all the major points that I find. And then um, at some point I type it in so that I have it as reference material in my little iDevice. And then indeed, if it's something that seems relevant, I will go back and review it. I never did this rigorously the way it sounds like you have it done, but I'll bet that's one of the reasons that so much of the, so many of the most significant books in my life, I do have pretty good memory for because I have done this kind of spaced repetition. Precisely. And, and so many people read a book and just expect it to go in there. And, you know, I just want to remind people, your brain is uh, 2% of your body's mass on average and it already consumes 20% of resources. So it has to be an extremely efficient piece of equipment. And so it trims the fat. I mean, your brain your brain is building, replacing, and removing neurons at an astonishing rate, right? I mean, newborn babies are building 100 million neurons a second. So think about, you know, 
all those neurons are being built and they're also being maintained and constantly renewed, refreshed, changed up. So if you want your brain to remember something, you need to take the steps to say, hey, this is interesting, it's important, and it's relevant. There was a guy named Malcolm Knowles who in 1955 came out with a list of requirements for adult andragogy, adult learning. And basically what he said is this stuff needs to be novel, there needs to be a respectful environment, needs to be connected to pre-existing knowledge, needs to have pressing need and applicability. And that's it. And, and basically the three things that I've outlined here cover three of those things and then pressing a- applicability. I kind of make the assumption that you're not going to try and learn things that you're not at least going to apply in the exam next week or at work next month. Well, it sounds like what we've talked about so far is interesting. It's definitely important because we need to remember things. And it's relevant because we need to remember things that are important to us. Absolutely. One of the things we need to remember, we have an image of Jonathan Livingston Siegel wearing wearing Levi's, and they look good. I think they're I think they're either um uh the uh, 1969 line. So they're they're pretty Absolutely. well-styled uh, well-styled Levi's, watch, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um so uh one more thing that we need to attach to this image, however, is your URL and how people can get a hold of you. Yeah. So become a super learner dot com is my url although i'll make it a little bit easier for people if they want to take advantage and, and sign up for a free trial and, and we'll of course give them a 10 percent discount because they're friends of yours stever so i want you to remember you have jonathan livingston siegel right and the middle he's basically flying and in the middle of his levi's right he's flying at this insanely fast speed and the levi's split down the middle right so that Imagine the word Levi, and it's split down the middle. So there's my URL, J-L-E dot V-I, right? Levi split down the middle. And then all they have to remember after that is slash get it done. And if they go there, it will give them a wonderful 10% off coupon, although they can sign up for a free trial with no credit card, take the first section of the course, diagnose their reading speed and retention levels, and basically learn all the fundamentals without necessarily committing or anything like that that's pretty awesome we love information and we love jle.vi so go there um remember slash get it done uh go there check out the uh, free material and if you decide it's right for you take the course because i know that i'm certainly going gee i'd love to learn how to do this and have this really integrated because you know it it the amount this is a podcast that's basically about productivity which means getting totally. things done in a more streamlined fashion and if i can put in 2 months worth of work and spend the next the next 40 years being able to snap things up in half the time and get it integrated into my brain that sounds like a really good trade off that's working less and doing more absolutely Absolutely. And this is, like I said, a skill that I apply in my professional life, in my personal life. It's just something that has paid dividends for me a thousand times over. Well, thank you very, very much, Jonathan. And uh, people know where to find Jonathan at jle.vi slash get it done. And this is Steve Robbins, the host of the Get It Done Guy podcast, which you can find uh, at getitdoneguy.com. Thank you for joining us.